0: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news. Joe Biden has officially won Arizona's most populous county of Maricopa, helping to solidify his victory in the key swing state. Oh, wait, oh, wait, okay, wait, my bad. That, that isn't breaking news at all. We've, we've known that for almost a year, since last November, when the election was decided. Biden's victory in the state was then certified by the Arizona Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, and witnessed by state officials as required by law. And yet, the Republicans and maga cult members behind this fake Arizona fraud it felt compelled to finalize their report today, offering nothing damning, nothing new. And after all of that, after nearly $6 million and the corrupting of voting equipment that taxpayers will now have to replace at their expense, after all those Cheeto fingers leaving Cheeto dust and the great search for bamboo shards from Asia, after a five-month campaign led by partisan grifters with zero election experience, the curtain has finally closed, with the Republican Party of Arizona announcing that President Biden did indeed win the election. In fact, according to their tally, Biden won by a wider margin than first thought, by 360 more votes, to which I heartily say— <laughs> I mean, come on! It's funny! objective So yeah, we can laugh about how this entire ordeal ended with the cyber ninjas looking more like cyber fools. But in all seriousness, it's no laughing matter for our democracy. Here's the rally happening right now outside the Arizona State Senate building, where the sham review hearing is underway, The place where big lie slogans and militiamen with semi-automatic weapons merge. What we're seeing here in Arizona is a full-on attempt to overthrow our democracy, happening right out in the open. Because those kooky optics were the point. Republicans can't win elections fairly anymore. So their new strategy is burning faith in Democratic institutions to the ground and having these fake, frauded, gaslighting exercises metastasize. Arizona was just the beginning. Republican, Republican lawmakers in other states are ramping up pretend investigations into the 2020 election too. In Texas, known as the new Gilead, under his eye, a full forensic fraud of the election in four counties has begun. The secretary of state did not explain what prompted it. But the announcement did occur hours after their dear leader made a public demand for it, prompting Texas Governor Greg Abbott to take time time off from putting women's bodies under state control to greenlight those recounts, even though, mind you, Trump won the state of Texas. Fraudits are happening in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, too, and there's nothing funny about that. Meanwhile, we're awaiting potentially bombshell new information about the front end of Trump's attempted coup. Last night, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th subpoenaed four former Trump officials and associates for documents and depositions to be held next month. Those witnesses were not only privy to Donald Trump's thinking before, during and after the insurrection. Some were involved in the planning of the Stop the Steal, quote unquote, Stop the Steal rally, as well as the Pentagon's response to the siege shortly thereafter. So basically, laugh until you cry. Joining me now is former U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill and Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst and former U.S. attorney. Claire, I have to start with you on this because you you you, uh, were in the United States Senate in the state of Missouri where a lot of this thinking is sort of become mainstream and mainlined. It feels like what this is in the Republican Party is a refusal to accept the reality that they did accept after President Obama won, that, you know what, we're having trouble winning voters of color. We need to do some kind of an audit to figure out why they don't want to vote for us. That was the old way of thinking. Well, wow, maybe we need to rethink our strategy. The new thinking is, YOLO, we're just going to pretend we didn't lose. We're just not going to admit it. We're not going to psychologically accept that it's possible for us to lose. Uh, what do you make of my theory?
1: Well, I, I think the problem here is you have a leader in the Republican Party who has no regard for truth, who has lied his entire life. I mean, this is a man who lies like other people brush their teeth and put on their shoes. It is it is his main way of communicating. When he doesn't like what the truth is, he just makes up something else. Look what he did today. I mean, his cyber ninjas basically said, hey, guy, you didn't even get as many votes as you thought you got. Uh, You got less than you thought you got. And what does he do? He sends out the clarion cry to all the Trumpers in the country. Hey, the mainstream media is lying here. There really was fraud. I talked to some Trump supporters over the weekend, Joy, and I had a civil conversation with them. And let me tell you, they sincerely believe Donald Trump. They think the election was stolen. They believe this is a fraud. They believe that he he is actually the legitimate president of the United States right now. And it was so unbelievable to have a face to face conversation with someone who says, well, yeah, of course he won. This is all just a fraud. This is just the, the powerful people in the swamp pulling the levers of power to take the presidency away from him. So today, he sent out a message to all of them. Hey, guys, this was still all a fraud. I am still
0: the president of the United States. You know, and Joyce, the thing is the voter level, right? Because, I mean, look, even though they did this audit, they, there was some of this after President Obama won, too. Let's just be clear. There was this idea that, well, nobody on my block voted for Obama, so there's no way he won. Nobody I know. I don't know anybody that voted for that, guy. So it's not possible, because when you see yourself as the majority and you see yourself as the mainstream, it is hard for you to believe that people unlike you of another race, of another region, could possibly have gotten their way, right? And it is one thing for people at the voter end to believe that, but there are a lot of people at the political to it doesn't matter if they believe it, they're acting on it. Let's go to Pennsylvania. You've had now Pennsylvania's attorney general, who's a Democrat, who's now filed a lawsuit against the republic against Republican state lawmakers because what they've done in the state of Pennsylvania is to try to de- is try to subpoena detailed personal information about voters. So they want to be able to ra- to rifle through people's personal information because they know that a lot of voters believe what Claire, the people that Claire talked to believe, right? And that they're willing to reinforce that because they think that'll help them win elections. My worry is that this—we can laugh about it, but this has now become a feature of our politics on the Republican side.
2: It's an incredibly damaging trend. When you think about it, on the one hand, this is voter intimidation. You'll remember, Joy, that in Arizona, right after the fraud started, DOJ sent a letter to the state of Arizona and said, we've got some concerns about this so-called audit that you're doing. You're going to lose control of ballots, which you're required to keep in your custody for 22 months after an election. But we're also worried about people going out and knocking on the doors of Arizona voters because you're asking the cyber ninjas to find out if voters were legitimate voters. DOJ raised those concerns and those same issues are implicated in Pennsylvania and other states. Now, it's not just voter intimidation, which would be more than bad enough. Now we're talking about collecting information on voters. We know that that information can be used in really negative ways. In 2017, when Trump was still president, he had created a so-called Commission on Election Integrity, and they were the first group that Trump put together. Their job was to look for fraud. They had to fold a couple months into their operation because they didn't find any fraud, But what they were caught doing was collecting information on voters and asking states to turn that information over. It was clear that was being collected for political purposes. That was enough to shut them down in 2017. The problem is now
0: it doesn't seem to provoke as much outrage. Well, and also they're putting in place people at the local level and at the election counting level who they know will go along with it or who believe it, who actually believe this fiction that it's just not possible for Republicans to lose elections. It just isn't possible that unless they win, it's fraud. I, I want to play one of the sort of people who normally I would say this is an extreme, but this, this is a mainstream um, Republican. This is Sean Patrick Maloney who runs the DCCC, talking about who was the happiest on January 6th.
3: I was in that undisclosed location with a bunch of Republicans who were — one in particular who was gleeful at what was transpiring outside. Took me a minute to understand why she was having such a good time. But I saw it. I saw it with her staff who caught up with her. They were excited about what was going on. They had been at the White House, I believe, the day before, talking about uh, what was going to happen.
4: Who was the gleeful uh, Republican member of Congress?
3: Well, I don't want to say, but her initials are Marjorie Taylor Greene.
0: (laughs)
4: Thank you very much. I mean, Claire,
0: you know, Margie three names basically has been replicated all across this country at the local level. And people like her are going to be in charge of counting the votes in 2022 and 2024. That's what scares me. The coup ain't over. Well,
1: there's no question that what they're trying to do is not just keep people from voting, but also to rig the count. And that's what is the scariest thing. I actually have said on this program and other programs, I think the more they publicly try to keep people from voting, the more it's going to motivate our voters to get out there. But rigging the count is a whole different kettle of fish. And that is a huge problem. And that is why we've got to make sure that DOJ is on point here. We've got to make sure that we're bringing lawsuits everywhere we can. And frankly, we've got to remember, Joy, there's elections out there that matter besides U.S. Senate and president and governor. We have got to pay attention to local elections and Democratic donors across the country that are busy sending $20, $30 to somebody who's got a slam dunk race. Do your homework. Find races, local races where you can really make a difference. I think that's one thing the Republicans have done much better than we have over the last decade.
0: They're going from the school board up. They're trying to infect the same sort of, you know, sort of fascist memeology all the way from the school board up using fake issues like critical race theory and mask mandates to get their voters motivated and even changing these voting laws. They're being pretty open. This is about GOTV. This is about motivating their voters by, by trying to guarantee them a win. So if you just come out and vote, we guarantee that you're going to win because we're not going to let the other people vote or we're going to rig the count. I want to read a, a little bit from a Robert Kagan column that is scaring everyone, um, Joyce. This is sort of everyone's worst nightmare. Here's a little piece of it. He writes, Trump charges, Trump's charges of fraud in the 2020 election are now primarily aimed at establishing the predicate to challenge future election results that do not go his way. The amateurish Stop the Steal efforts of 2020 have given way to an organized nationwide campaign to ensure that Trump and his supporters will have the control over state and local election officials that they lacked in 2020. The big nightmare— Joyce, is that they will rig the system by owning the system and running the system, and there won't be the goo-goo, good government, local Republicans that stop them. Next time, they'll just take the election, regardless of what the majority says.
2: Joy, I can remember a time not very long ago when people like you and people like Claire who who raised this issue were dismissed as being hyperbolic or or alarmist. And the reality is that this has always been the narrative underlying what Trump is doing. The big lie unrealistically strove to overturn the 2020 election. What it really is now and the reason it has continued for so long into the Biden presidency is it sets the tone in the narrative for 2022 and 2024. And obviously, the former president and perhaps other operatives in the Republican Party have realized that it's possible to sell yes. the American people a negative narrative, a bill of goods that says elections are fraudulent, And that, they hope, will let them take over those elections in the future.
0: Claire, do D.C. Republicans, particularly on the Senate side, do they understand that in your view? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Most
1: of the Republicans in the Senate are privately embarrassed at the big lie and the fact that all of them are too timid to take on what is now um, without any doubt the controlling base of their party. But do the Democrats get it?
0: Like, are the Democrats prepared to fight this?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think everybody gets what's going on. And I think there is frustration because we have such an evenly divided Senate. I mean, we have an evenly divided Senate and just have a majority because we have a couple of people elected that, frankly, especially uh, those in states that Trump won by more than 20 points, I mean, they they are Democrats, but they are there because they have always campaigned as somebody who is more moderate than the Democratic Party. So we have this horrible conflict of trying to get to 51 on things or trying to reform the filibuster to get at this. And that's why it's so important. And by the way, even doing this stuff in Washington doesn't necessarily take care of the state and local level. So real. just take a. Take a chill here and realize even if we did away with the filibuster, that doesn't fix this problem. You've got to fix this problem at the local level. So start paying attention who your local um, recorder is, who the county clerk is, who your secretary of state is. Get involved in those elections.
0: It is not Sunday, but you can get an amen and a hallelujah for that. Claire McCaskill, thank you very much, Joyce Vance. Thank you very much, ladies. Have a great weekend. Up next on the readout, President Biden promises consequences for the mistreatment of Haitian migrants. Ambassador Patrick Gaspard is just back from the southern border. He joins me next on what he saw and what needs to be done. Plus, this week you heard us discuss a thing called Missing White Woman Syndrome. The cases that get all the media attention, but what about the missing people of color? Now we're seeing an uptick in coverage. And tonight, I'm joined by the father of Daniel Robinson, who went missing in June. And imagine a white MAGA Senate candidate lecturing the children of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about what their dad, their father, stood for. We live in strange times, y'all. The readout continues after this. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas confirmed today that no migrants remain at the bridge encampment in Del Rio, Texas. This is a dramatic development nearly a week after 15,000 people, most of them Haitians, converged at the border crossing. According to Mayorkas, since since Sunday, 17 repatriation flights have returned about 2,000 Haitian nationals to Haiti. About 12,000 individuals were relocated and will have their cases heard by an immigration judge to make a determination on whether they will be removed or permitted to remain in the United States. Roughly 8,000 have decided to remain in Mexico. Many migrants face expulsion because they are not covered by protections extended by the Biden administration, called Temporary Protected Status, that granted more than 100,000 Haitians the right to remain on American soil if they were here prior to July 29th. Mayorkas once again reiterated the administration's determination that, despite a recent presidential assassination and earthquake, Haiti is capable of receiving returned nationals. The administration has relied on a rarely used public health law invoked by the Trump administration called Title 42 to suspend all entry to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Critics are calling for an end to the use of Title 42. Earlier in the day, President Biden took responsibility for what was happening at the border.
5: Of course, I take responsibility. I'm president, but it was horrible what to see,
3: as you saw. To see people treat it like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay.
0: While they're willing to take responsibility, it doesn't look like the administration will end expulsions anytime soon. Vice President Harris, the administration's point person on immigration at the southern border, did acknowledge that more had to be done to help Haiti during a rather weirdly elated appearance on The View.
2: We've got to do more. There's no question. The United States is a member of the Western Hemisphere. Haiti is our neighbor in that regard. And so we have to do more in terms of supporting the Haitians who are returning to the island, returning to Haiti. We've got to do more without any question to support Haiti in terms of its need to to get back up and to recover. For more,
0: I'm joined by Patrick Gaspard, president of the Center for American Progress former ambassador to South Africa, and former White House political director during the Obama administration. He toured the Del Rio encampment yesterday. And Patrick, it's always great to see you. Um, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas has been doing a round of media interviews on CNN, on MSNBC. He was on this program as well last week. But I want to let you hear his latest comments about whether or not Haiti ought to, in its current state, be receiving migrants.
3: We have continued to study the conditions in Haiti, and we have, in fact, determined, despite the tragic and devastating earthquake, that Haiti is, in fact, capable of receiving individuals. And we are working with Haiti and with humanitarian relief agencies to ensure that their return is as safe and humanely accomplished as possible.
0: Based on what you know about what's going on in Haiti right now, do you agree with that?
3: Absolutely not. I I, uh, respectfully disagree with my friend, Secretary Mayorkas. Let me me first, uh, Joy, uh, acknowledge the progress we did make today. It's terribly important that in two separate appearances, the president and the vice president acknowledge that what occurred at the border was inhumane, reprehensible, and harken back to some of the worst history that we've had here in the U.S. The president said there would be consequences, and we're beginning to see that. I will also acknowledge that Secretary Mayorkas is now allowing Migrant asylum seekers to come into the U.S. to have their cases adjudicated. We don't have transparency. There are human rights attorneys who need to provide counsel uh, to those asylum seekers. And I I was in Haiti right before the pandemic, uh, Joy, uh, even before the pandemic. uh, Folks were still reeling from the earthquake. They were reeling from uh, tropical storms. And there was profound political violence uh, in the country. Uh, as a consequence of the illegal, unconstitutional extension of President uh, Jovenel Moïse's term. uh, He tragically was assassinated in July. We need to appreciate that there's a connection between the dislocations in Haiti, the policies that we've supported there, uh, and what we're now seeing uh, at the border. So I respectfully disagree with the the secretary uh, on that one point, even while acknowledging the progress uh, that they made in very short order. I also want to say, Joy, We have to acknowledge that advocacy works uh, because the combined voices of Americans who said this is not us uh, compelled the administration to act.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was seeing people being essentially herded like cattle and men, women and even children in that condition was shocking, uh, I think, for for anyone with eyes. Right. Um, I, I have to just bring up the elephant in the room because you were an ambassador and you know what this role is like, you know, to have the special envoy to Haiti resign in such a dramatic fashion. And that letter uh, that was written was pretty alarm was pretty alarming. And I think he spoke for a lot of people who, who felt sort of disgust at seeing um, the way that ha- Haitian migrants are being treated. At the same time, the pushback against him has also been kind of alarming in that one of the things the administration, that the State Department is saying, is an ambassador foot that one of his ideas that he put forward that was declined by the administration was sending the military into Haiti. Well, that doesn't sound Mm -hmm. like that makes any sense either, and that is also alarming. I don't understand—like, is there anyone that actually has a good idea about what to do regarding our island neighbor?
3: There's a lot to unpack there, Joy, but I have to tell you that I'm having a really emotional reaction to the footage that you just showed again. You know that I'm Haitian-American. My family came here at a different time. We're welcomed by by our fellow Americans, uh, and it's difficult to see what happened. And I was there at the border yesterday speaking to women, pregnant women who traveled 5,000 miles to seek freedom here, who said uh, that there's no way they could be sent back to, to Haiti because of the policies that you just described. I know Ambassador Dan Foote. Uh, I worked with him uh, in his two months uh, as envoy. I will tell you that he is the f- one of the uh, few uh, in uh, the American administration over several presidencies who acknowledge Haitian civil society, who leaned into the aspirations of average uh, Haitians who just want a democratic path uh, for their country, uh, and so there was a resonance uh, that he found uh, in uh, community. Many of us were not surprised by his resignation because he had expressed some real disagreements with the, the path of policy. So I, I, I just want to say that the, the Haitian-American community found uh, the ambassador to be somebody with integrity and to be purposeful. And in that letter, not only did he speak to the inhumane treatment of Haitians at the border, but he spoke directly to failed U.S. policy uh, in Haiti and said very clearly that if we are not endorsing and supporting the path that's been carved out by over 300 civil society groups who've courageously come together to talk about what future democratic uh, aspirations should look like uh, in uh, Haiti, then we will continue to have these kinds of crises at our border. It's important to bring these two pieces together.
0: Yeah, indeed. I these have to let you are- listen to- Oh, absolutely. I I, I even hate to play this for you, but I'm going to let you listen to what some Republicans—because they haven't exactly been um, honest brokers on this. They've been using this horror that we've all watched for politics, of course. And here's what some of them have been saying about these migrants.
2: We know what the Democrats are up to here. They want open borders. This is exactly their strategy. Uh, They want to replace the American electorate
3: uh, with
2: with a third world electorate
3: that uh, will be on welfare and public assistance. In political terms, this policy is called the great replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. They brag about it all the time, but if you dare to say it's happening, they will scream at you with maximum hysteria. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about how the other side is, has openly admitted that this is about bringing in voters that they want and they like and
0: honestly diminishing and decreasing white demographics in America. So that is obvious and blatant white nationalism. The great replacement theory is white nationalist. What you just heard was white nationalism. What do you make of the fact that it is now open, white nationalism?
3: Yeah, you know, there's, there's a time when People used to sound, uh, you know, dog whistle and there'd be some race baiting. That's just straight up racism. What what Tucker Carlson said, that conspiracy, that theory around uh, the Great Replacement, is straight up racism. It's nothing new uh, in this country. We've had that kind of rhetoric, that kind of violence uh, in the past. I will tell you that uh, there were individuals who were dressed uh, in full kind of military regalia who greeted Reverend Sharpton and I uh, at the border yesterday. They were using that rhetoric and they were trying to incite us uh, into some kind of a violent uh, reaction. But you know what I also saw yesterday? I saw hundreds of Del Rio residents. Del Rio is a small town. I saw those residents who were average Americans come out and give food, shelter, lend whatever assistance they could uh, to those uh, asylum seekers and refugees. And I like to think that that's the real heart of America uh, and not what we're seeing on uh, Fox News and elsewhere. And I mean, regrettably.
0: Senate aisle uh, that the Republicans occupy. Yeah. Uh, amen to that. Uh, Let us hope. Uh, Patrick Gaspart, my friend, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Um, all the best to you. Thank you so much. Still ahead, the search for Daniel Robinson, the family of a 24-year-old Arizona geologist missing since June is not giving up hope, but they need your help. His father, David, joins us next. Stay with us. Earlier this week, we had a conversation about the Gabby Petito case and the lack of coverage for missing people of color. It's called Missing White Woman Syndrome. And boy, did that start a conversation. But despite how upset some people got about our mentioning this aspect of media bias, with a hat tip to the late great Gwen Ifill, people are now paying more attention to some of these other cases, like Jelani Day, who was reported missing in Illinois in late August. Sadly, his body was identified yesterday. It had been in a county morgue for weeks. His family criticized police for dragging their feet in trying to find him. And there's the case in Arizona of Daniel Robinson, who has been missing for three months. The 24-year-old geologist was last seen leaving a job site in the desert. Nearly a month later, his Jeep was spotted overturned in a ravine only a few miles away. According to police, his cell phone, wallet, and keys were found with the vehicle. They say no foul play is suspected. But Daniel Robinson's father says police have dropped the ball in the search for his son. As a result, he's hired a private investigator and is taking up the search himself. David Robinson joins me now. And Mr. Robinson, I am so sorry for what you're going through. I have children your son's age, and so this one hits me hard as a mom. Um, so let's talk about this. I noticed your story after the whole conversation started about missing white woman syndrome. Lots of people started tweeting your story and your petition to me. And that is how I found out about it. Not through mainstream media, not through local news. Tell me how, tell me your son's story. Your son went out to Arizona and then what happened?
5: Well, my son, he, he graduated from the college Charleston in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, straight out of college, um, he came out to Arizona, uh, Arizona, in Tucson to take a final class. Uh, from there, he landed his job in Phoenix here with Matrix New World, uh, he was very happy to be here in Arizona, um, main so because he's a geologist and they gave him an opportunity to um, um, you know work his profession and also um, the things that he loved, do the things that he loved.
0: So when your son went missing. How long did it take before the last time you heard from him? And when you said, "Okay, he's just not calling," you know, young people sometimes won't check in. When did you make the connection that this is something other than him not just checking in?
5: Well, um, you know, my daughter, uh, she lived in Phoenix. Also, um, her, the people from his job came over there to her apartment, uh, notified um, her that they was looking for. Her. Of course, she's um, going to call me or her her mother. Uh, she called me about it. Uh, we didn't think anything too bad other than, you know, he was starting to not answer his phone. That was first unusual. Um, after I realized it was, uh, from the time he, um, they, they say he was, um, last seen at his job and the time that he was answering the phone, it ended up coming six hours. But Daniel, that's totally unusual. Um, he yeah. would never, ever uh, get to that point.
0: <laughs> and what did local police do when you contacted them? What did they tell you?
5: Well, um, you know, they, they was helpful for the first day. Um, they took the report. Uh, first, they told me I had to wait 12 hours, which is I was three hours off. I called back after the three hours. Um, they took my report, and they allowed. Um, they also started asking questions around the job, um, you know, to try to locate them that way. Uh, I think one of the officer crews went out and did a uh, drive-through of the street area, not in the desert. Um, I requested them to go out to look for my son. Uh, they told me, of course, he's a grown man, So, um, and then it was at night also, so they couldn't go out. Um, the next morning, I asked them the same question. Hey, can y'all please go out there and look for my son? screw um, told me that they were going to um, go out there, but then he called me back an hour or so later and say it's been denied from the higher-ups because he's a grown man, and um, um, he has the right to leave if he wants to. Um, from that point, I have Auntie in uh, Philly who called, and I don't know what she said to them, but Hey, she, she can't call me back and say, hey, they're going to send the fire bird out from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And that was the first search. But by that time, as um, soon as they told me the first time they were going out from the sun, I was in my car already heading to Phoenix. Uh, by the time I got to Phoenix, that's when they was out on the 26th.
0: Yeah. And I mean, he has a right to leave if he wants to, but his car is overturned. They find his keys. They find his wallet. That's not somebody just heading off uh, on a vacay or not deciding they want to go away. The circumstances surrounding your son's disappearance are so strange that it would seem to be sort of a natural story for media to pick up. Did you get the sense that local media, that people were taking an interest in his story due to all of these bizarre um, items that are associated with it?
5: Well, um, of course, I, I started my own search um, from yeah. 80 to uh, almost 200 people. We've been doing it for seven weeks. And, and in the meantime, I was definitely trying to reach out to the media. I was able to get some media coverage with the local news. Um, sure. I was desperately trying to get more uh, coverage through um, uh, you know, social media and things like that to try to get national attention because I was not getting anything from the uh, Buckeye Police Department at the time. So I had to take matters in my own, own hand. It just took three months to do so.
0: And do you feel that the police have, have failed you in this matter?
5: Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, and, and the biggest part is uh, the urgency. I feel yeah. like if um, there was something taken seriously from um, day one, um, prime example um, is uh, the Gabby story. Every every situation should be handled the same way. Um, yeah. I think um, first 24, 48 hours is crucial um, to finding someone.
0: Thank you for pointing that out because I, I think also because he's he's a, he's a guy not a not a young woman and there's all sorts of factors into what people pay attention to but you're absolutely right each of these stories should be treated with the same urgency. We wish you the best of luck. Please keep in touch with us and we will also keep in touch with you and stay on top of Daniel's story. David Robinson, thank you and wishing you all the very best. Thank you so much. All right, if anybody has any information that could help find Daniel, you can reach David Robinson at this website. Please fo- please help. FindDaniel.com. Please help findDaniel.com. Or you can contact the Buckeye, Arizona police at 623 349 6400. That's 623 349 6400. Please help if you have any information at all. Okay, we've got a lot of politics to talk about coming up on the readout, and that continues after this. The virus now infecting the Republican Party, not COVID, which they weirdly want to sop up like gravy with a biscuit, has left the party firmly in the hands of, well, cranks and kooks. Look at the Ohio U.S. Senate primary race to the bottom, where p- ferociously anti non white refugee former state treasurer Josh Mandel is on Twitter lecturing the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s adult children about their own father's legacy telling Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King III, get this, you don't know what you're talking about. And he told King's daughter, Dr. Bernice King, to spare him the lectures about her father's legacy, which she specifically works to preserve. He went on to tell the CEO of the King Center that he'd take his civil rights guidance from her cousin, Alveda King, thank you, which is unsurprising since she is a big fan of the disgraced former president and a fixture over at Pots News. Josh Mandel undoubtedly knows nothing that Dr. King actually preached beyond, I have a dream. He probably memorized just that one line. So he should take under advisement Dr. King's own words. Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Meanwhile, hedge fund hillbilly grifter J.D. Vance, in an interview this week where he defended the Texas abortion ban, was asked if anti-abortion laws should make exceptions for rape and incest.
5: It's not whether a woman should be forced to bring a child to term. It's whether a child should be allowed to live, even though the circumstances of that child's birth are somehow inconvenient or a problem to the
0: society. The question really, to me, is about the baby. Well, no one thought to ask of J.D. what she thought about Commander Vance's thoughts. Not that they could, under his eye. Maybe they could query her Martha. Martha. Now, keep in mind, Ohio's ostensibly moderate former Governor John Kasich signed into law some of the most restrictive abortion bans. So Vance's beliefs are more or less mainstream in the Gilead old party. But in a sign of our dark future, these two fear mongering MAGA suck ups are now two of Ohio Republicans top alternatives to replace the norm core bland current Republican Senator Rob Portman, who's retiring and getting the hell out of cookie town. Because in the current GOP, the only thing that matters is that orange Julius Caesar gets the minions he wants. I'm joined now by Dino Vidala, host of The Dino Vidala Show on Sirius XM and an MSNBC columnist. And David Jolly, former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with the party. And I love that you emphasize that, David, but I'm going to make you answer for this one. Because right now in Ohio, it's kookier, kookier. You've got um, the, the, these two guys, one of whom despises non-white Uh, refugees, despite his own family having a history of coming to the United States as refugees, and now thinks he knows more about Dr. King than Dr. King's own children. Your thoughts?
4: (laughs) Um, Joy, can I just cede my time to you to continue with your riff? Because you're nailing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You you may not.
4: (laughs) Listen, so we are so far out from 2022. Here's what I will tell you. I'm a, a relatively informed Politico analysis, whatever you want to call me. And I otherwise wouldn't be paying attention to this race. But for the fact that J.D. Vance and this other guy are in this race to outstupid each other. And you kind of have to pay attention like every single day for who's going to say something more stupid than the other. And, but you hit on something very interesting, which is they are looking to succeed Rob Portman. And Rob Portman is actually from that that uh, call it the Jeb Bush Chamber of Commerce cerebral Republican class. He was an OMB director under George W. George 43, right? a fairly traditional Republican. And so I think if you can take any analysis from what we're watching in this evolution in Republican Ohio politics right now, it's that look at where we're going to from Rob Portman now to J.D. Vance or Josh Mandel. And that tells you everything you need to know about the Republican Party today.
0: Well, you know, Rob Horn doesn't fit in. He doesn't have giant red shoes and a red nose to put on and crazy red hair. You have to be like, whoa to be a Republican now or else you don't really fit in at all. So, you know, but let's go to uh, the state of, of Georgia, where the favorite of Donald the Trump is Herschel Walker, Uh, a few things about Herschel Walker. Um, He had threatened his former life, former wife's life, threatened her life during and after her marriage. He ended up getting a protective order in 2005. Um, He has written about his dissociative identity disorder, which used to be known as multiple personality disorder. He's written and has given interviews about playing Russian roulette with a gun. Um, he's lived in Texas since 2011, and so his current wife was investigated for illegally voting in the state of Georgia. That is Donald Trump's candidate, and so guess what Mitch McConnell says? Oh, there's some things written that indicate he's had some challenges to his life. On the other hand, the good news, he's made some very impressive performances on national television.
6: Your thoughts? I, he should move to Ohio and make it a real fight between JD Vance and Josh Mandel. All they're they're vastly different. Mandel and Vance are out trying to out bigot each other. Herschel Walkers, it doesn't matter anything about their past. There's one thing, Joy. Will you pledge a low an loyalty, loyalty oath to Donald Trump? All that is about. So he is Trump's guy. He played for the Washington Generals when Donald Trump owned that football team. He loves him. That's all I matters. There's nothing else. So he'll campaign on I've had problems. I might have some a few personalities. Vote for all of my personalities in this election <laughs> But because likes me. And I'm not making fun of him if he had some no. actual daughter. I I hope the best for him that he's dealt with it. But again, none of that matters. All that matters is loyalty to Trump and that's what that election is about. Just like Jody Heiss running against Brad Raffensperger for secretary of state because Jody Heiss is way out there. Jody Heiss, they actually said "Should women run for office. And he says as long as they have the permission of their husband, that's Jody Heiss. He's running for, con- for secretary of state and he's in Congress now. So, he you know, in Georgia, the bigots are much more troubling than Herschel Walker's got some personal issues. Loyalty to Trump is all that matters.
0: OK, real quick, uh, lightning round. What's your favorite breakfast cereal deed?
6: Uh, or, uh, I'm not sure. Raisin Bran. Raisin Bran. Raisin Bran. Okay. David, favorite,
4: favorite breakfast cereal. Is Red Bull a cereal? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: no. I'm going to answer for you. Cap'n Crunch is the best breakfast cereal. Now let me see. Let me let you guys know what Michael Flynn thinks he might be having soon for breakfast.
1: Somebody sent me a thing this morning where they're talking about putting the vaccine into salad dressing. Or salads.
0: Have you seen this? Oh, I thought it was breakfast cereal. I'm sorry. It was Mine was funnier. So- he should have said it would be in your cereal. He said it was in the salad dressing. So that's totally sane, David. I messed that up. Sure. Totally sane no, to say patient. it's going to
4: be on your salad. There's something good that can come from this because now the MAGA constituency might start ordering their salad dressing on the side, which is a more responsible <laughs> dietary choice. <laughs>
0: I don't know why it wasn't breakfast cereal in my head, but I think this actually worked out better. Let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. So she sure. basically, to me, is those two old guys that were in the Muppet show that are up in the balcony screaming at everyone and screaming at the other Muppets while they're trying to do the show. Like, that's actually her job, apparently, now. So she was screaming at not only Debbie Dingell, who is her senior, but anyone else who walked out of the Capitol today, just screaming at them and
4: being like, nah!
6: I, 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 your thoughts, Dean? <laughs> Was she screaming, please pay attention to me? She just screamed, please pay attention to me. Who put honey materna dressing in my food? You've got her screaming about, she literally just wants attention. She's on no committee. She's got nothing else to do but scream at other members of Congress for attention. Here's the worst part. In the first quarter, she raised like $3 million in campaign contributions. So we look at her and go like, wow, that's almost unstable. There's something scary. Republican (laughs) base looks at her and go, I love that. I'm going to send that person money. Again, that is far more scary than the yelling at people on on the Hill there. I saw that. I couldn't believe yelling at Debbie Dingell, who's a very nice person.
0: I guess we should just be happy she wasn't armed while screaming. Um, And on a more serious note, David, I mean, these Republicans are going to run on race baiting Haitian migrants and claiming that they're that they are part of great replacement theory on critical race theory, which is taught in law school, supposedly infecting the minds of white children and on anti-maskism, basically demanding that children infect each other with covid in school. That is the twenty twenty two campaign on the Republican side. Is there any chance that despite redistricting and gerrymandering, that will not succeed? Is there any chance that that fails?
4: Yeah, we hope. Look, Republicans, <laughs> Republicans have an advantage in the House because they could pick up eight to ten seats just through redistricting but you hit on something very important. The Republican playbook in twenty two is about culture wars and this idea of replacement theory uh, of critical race. this is all use the word racism. this is a racist Republican platform and you know when when I see replacement theory I think of this it's it's the poem on the Statue of Liberty, Emma Lazarus, who says, Bring me your tired, your poor, yearning to be free. The fascinating thing is the, the passage before that, she says, Hey, keep O oh, distant lands, keep old world, you, other countries, keep your pomp, keep your famous, keep your fabulous, send me, send us, the United States, your tired. You're poor. Those yearning to be free. The story of the United States is a story of diversity and immigration. Today's Republicans don't want you to believe that.
0: Well, they don't Mm -hmm. like him. she was too woke. She was too woke. Uh, David and David and Dean are going to stick around for who won the week. And you should, too. It's going to be fun. We'll be back in a second. Well, folks, once again, we made it to Friday. And that means it's time to play our favorite game. Who won the week? Back with me, Dean Obadala, David Jolly, David Jolly, who won the week?
4: Texas Democrats, the news that Beto O'Rourke might run for governor of the state of Texas. Look, he is a he is a rock star among Democratic politics. He's a national figure. He can nationalize this race. We know that statewide in Texas, Democrats continue to encroach upon Republicans. Beto is not the perfect candidate, right? Some of his statements on guns, some of his statements on other progressive issues don't seem too Texan but the reality is Texan Texas Democrats have somebody that could be a massive fundraiser and could nationalize the Texas race. We'll, we'll see There's a lot of chatter about an independent third party run as yeah. well, but Texas Democrats won this week.
0: Okay, all right, that could be a very interesting race. All right. Uh, Dean Obadala,
6: who won the week? Hold on to your hat. I'm picking a Republican and you may not have picked it up, but I'm not a fan of the GOP. His name is Jack Sellers, the chair of the Maricopa County Board of Elections. He's a Republican. For months, he's been denouncing denouncing that sham audit as a grift. He said, it's craziness. You're wasting time. And sure enough, the report comes out and he's proven correct. In fact, not only did did, did Jack Sellers win the week, but Joe Biden won it as well because he keeps winning Arizona. Like there 10, you go. I Blue state you do audits, so we can just have Biden wins every week. We're like, he we, we doesn't it. win just, every week. Well, my
0: choice was going to be whoever made the impeach sign for Lauren Boebert because wow. I'm, he, I'm, yeah, impeach Biden. But I'm picking Melba Wilson today. She hosted Meghan Markle and Prince Harry at her wonderful restaurant Melba's in Harlem. There they are. Oh my God, I'm so proud of Melba, that was awesome. That is tonight's readout.